Hey, it's July 12, 1993, and I'm a member of the baby group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Toronto. We meet Thursdays and Sundays, Thursdays for a closed discussion meeting and Sundays for an open speaker meeting. If you're ever in the north end of Toronto, I'd really like to see you there. You'll get a warm cup of coffee, a good handshake, and you'll enjoy the meeting of uh, the baby group. You know, this always sounds like a good idea. Six months ago, John asked me to come up here and share, and it always sounds like a great idea at the time. And I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conference up till right now. But I'm here, as my, my, my sponsor's sponsor said, he said, you know, Eric, the one thing we try and do in Alcoholics Anonymous when we get up at these podiums is we do the best we can and we practice the presence of God. And today I'm going to just do that. My sponsor phoned me at about 5 a.m. this morning. This is the kind of guys I hang out with in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he phoned me and he just said, I fi- he phoned at 6 o'clock this morning. He's on his way home from England right now. And you know what he said to me? He said he left a message saying, Eric, I just wanted to know that I'm that I'm thinking about you. And I know you're going to do well. And he said at about 10 a.m., if you feel a little twinge come over you, it's me saying a prayer for you. And I thank God for that. Because he said, you know what? I bet your eyes snapped open at about 5 a.m. this morning. <laughs> Some of you might know my sponsor. His name's Butch M. He's from the, he's from the Tuesday Night Collier Street group up in Barrie. And, and, and Butch has been my sponsor for the last four months and five months. And, and Butch has been a, a godsend in my life. We lost his sponsor. I don't know. Some of you might know Bobby D., from the Barry, from the Tuesday nights to Collier Street Group in Barry, he died uh, June 10th this year, Founders Day in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bobby was a great old timer, and I miss Bobby so much. But he was just a great man, and he taught me so much. I only got to know him for the last couple of years, but that man is sorely, sorely missed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was speaking at a meeting that night. It was the Hill Group, and Bobby died at about 9:25 that night. And at 9.20 that night when I was speaking at this group, what happened is a bat came out. In the last 10 minutes of my talk, I was dodging around like this, and this bat was coming at me from all different areas. And after that meeting was over that night, I said, you know what, because I thought about it the next day when Butch phoned me and said the old guy passed away. And I just figured it was Bobby just coming to say goodbye. And I really truly truly look at it to, to be that way. That's exactly what happened. It was just Bobby saying, goodbye, Eric. And I've had 45 years of sobriety, and I miss him every day, and, and I'm just, I'm so grateful I got to know him. I'd just like to do a little housekeeping, as Tom said last night, what a conference this has been. You know, I know that these conferences are hard to put on. A lot of work goes into them, and I just think we should give the committee a great hand here for putting a wonderful, wonderful conference on. I'm just starting to get the opportunity to do these things a little bit, and uh, I know I'm, I've done a lot of these conferences myself, and I'm the chair of the Ontario Regional Conference in, in 06, and I know the work that goes into these things, and, and, and there's a lot of work behind the scenes and, uh, to put these deals on, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm privileged and honored to be here with you people in Winnipeg tonight, uh, this morning. And my host, Dr. Bob, that's what I like to call him. He picked me up at the airport, and we had such a fantastic time, and, and he showed me around the city, and... He's a real guy, too, and, and I know he loves this deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can tell the people that love this deal. they got a twinkle in their eyes, and they got a step in their step, and they love this thing. And, and you know what to see? Me and John were talking last night about watching young people come in this program. There's, been like, there's nothing like watching young people come around this program and, and get this deal and do this thing and loving, loving, loving it, just loving it. And I'd just like to thank you for, for hosting me. We're hosting the World Conference next year. And I sure hope all of you will come out to it, because it is going to be one big party. That's right. A friend of mine was telling me a couple weeks ago that our mayor was getting interviewed. And a reporter asked him, he said, 
Mr. Mayor, there's going to be about 50 or 60,000 alcoholics in Toronto for four days. And he says, do you think Alcoholics Anonymous works? And the mayor shot back and he said, well, I sure hope so, because if it doesn't, <laughs> this city's in big trouble. <laughs> keep it in the words of Dr. Bob. Keep the Freudian complexes to the scientific mind. AA's values of simplicity must prevail, and they do. I was down in Cleveland a few years ago, and there was a man named Jack Sullivan, who's dead now, and he had a friend named Wino Joe Leach from Tyler, Texas. And you know those 20 questions that are asked on, on the yellow pamphlet that they hand out? Well, they were written by a psychologist out of John Hopkins University. And Joe and Jack used to get a little pissed off that, an alcohol, that a professional man would be calling an alcoholic an alcoholic, so they decided to write a few of their own. And one of them was, have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburned? Have you ever been arrested while in jail? Have you ever been run over by your own car while driving? And probably the granddaddy of them all, have you mastered the art out of puking out of, have you mastered the art out of, have you mastered the art out of puking out of a moving vehicle without any of it coming back at you? And it's funny, as you look around the rooms of AA, people are going, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, boy. Yeah, that's right. I hope there's two things I can do here tonight. And the first thing is because I came to my first meeting on July 11th, 1993, and I did not come to get sober. I came to watch a one-year medallion for a friend of my brother, Paul, and Paul's uh, been in this program 15 years. And I came to watch this one-year medallion for his friend, and my life changed that night. You see, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I really believe that God works through the people in AA, and the power that was going on in that room that night was unbelievable. The, the, the baby group was about 200 members at its open meeting on Sunday nights. And the power that was in that room turned my life around. And there's two things that happened. And the one thing that happened to me that night is they talk about the hope in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the first time in a long time, I had some hope. Because I walked in that room that night and there was people that were laughing. There was people that were, that were just having a good time in AA. And you could tell that. As I talked about before, they had a twinkle in their eye. They had a step in their step. And you could just see that they were enjoying being sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the first time in a long time, hope was born for me. The second thing I saw that night is I saw people that were excited about being sober. And I don't know about you, but I was never excited about being sober. And so when I saw the excitement of people that were doing this deal, it was almost hard to believe that these people weren't drinking. I'm telling you. But I'm, what, what I saw that night was hope and excitement about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when you see that and you don't have any hope in your life, you're going to attach to that. You're going to grab onto that. And that's exactly what I did. And the meeting that night was exciting. The lady that was up there speaking, her name was Terry. Terry, and she was a counselor at the Renaissance Center. And Terry talked what I like to call, and what our book likes to call, the language of the heart. And she talked about things like fear. And she talked about things like humiliation and shame and anger and resentment and all that stuff. And she said something that made perfect sense to a guy like me. And if you're alcoholic, you'll understand this. She talked about hiding booze in her own apartment when she was the only one that lived there. And I don't know about you, but that makes sense to me. And what happens is, I don't, what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about two things. We talk about drinking and we talk about sense. And any time a newcomer comes into Alcoholics Anonymous and people are talking sense, it sounds like a bunch of nonsense to an alcoholic. And when they're talking nonsense, that makes a lot of sense to an alcoholic. That's why you'll see somebody who's six months sober in AA and they'll be sitting at a table one night and a person will say, why don't you try and live one day at a time? And he'll go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, people have been telling him that every day for the last six months. But what happened is that night it clicked in. 
And I believe what we do here is we take a little bit of the unrealism out and we put the realism in. When it talks in our book about we are people that are full flight from reality, boy, oh boy, is that ever true, eh? We are full flight from reality. Nothing makes sense to us when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what we do here. We put the realism in. That's what this program's all about in the practical program of action that's outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can remember that night, and we do chips in, in, in Toronto of nine, six, three, and one month and a desire chip. And I can remember that, you got to understand, my family was here, and my brother Paul was up chairing the meeting. My mother was there. My brother Scott was there. And, and a friend of Scott's was there, and I was right beside Scott. And they got to that nine-month chip, and they said, is there anybody here with nine months of sobriety? Six months, three months, one month. Then it got to that desire chip, and they said, is there anybody here that has a desire to stop drinking? My whole family looked down at me like that. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. But you see what happened during that meeting is about halfway through that meeting, I started to catch just a little bit of alcoholism, just a bit, just a bit. And when that meeting was over, I was a full-blown alcoholic with the disease of alcoholism, and I haven't had a drink since. And I went up to my brother. Thank you. And I went up to a friend of my brother's. His name was Eldon. And I said, Eldon, I think I want to do something about my drinking. And he said, well, you know, you're going to have to quit all that other stuff. And I said, I know I'm going to have to do that. And that's where my journey started. So when you talk about spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's exactly what happened to me that night. The power of Alcoholics Anonymous, how it's able to strip the egos of alcoholics and to, to make them feel part of something. And I hadn't been part of something for an awful long time. And that room that night turned my life around. I really, really believe that God got me sober. I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous got me sober. I believe that God got me sober. But I really believe what Alcoholics Anonymous has done is it's brought a purpose and an effectiveness to my sobriety where I really believe that my purpose on life today and God has given me the purpose and given all of us the purpose of sending, of carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the alcoholic who still suffers. And I love this program. I'm excited about this program. And I hope you can get excited about this program because it's the best deal in town for alcoholics of our sort. One of the greatest things in the world is that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had people that weren't scared of hurting my sensitive alcoholic feelings. They were willing to step on me enough because they loved me enough to take a liar and a cheat and a thief like me and to help them out and to show me a new way of life. And I always wondered why they did things like that. And the only reason I've been told many times, the only reason they do things like that is because they're so grateful for what has happened to them that they're willing to take a guy like me and work with me and show me the way of life of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thank God for guys like that. One of the greatest things they did for me is they described the kind of person I was when I wasn't drinking. And I think that's the key here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can remember my sponsor asking me when I came in, he said, Eric, what do you think Alcoholics Anonymous is about? And I said, it's about not drinking. And he said, Eric, Alcoholics Anonymous has absolutely nothing to do with not drinking. It has everything to do how to learn how to live without drinking. And that's been the key to Alcoholics Anonymous for me. You see, when I'm not drinking, our big book talks in the doctor's opinion. It talks about I am restless, irritable, and discontented at my best. That's the kind of person I am when I'm not drinking. But when I have a couple drinks, something happens to me. And it's just like this. And I don't know if you people can ever relate to this, but I'm sure you can. When I take a little bit of rye or a little bit of beer and I go, boy, that feels good. 
and it makes me feel like I fit into society. It makes me feel like I feel part of this world. You know the promises in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, I really believe that we demand to have those promises come true in our life. And if we don't get those promises in our life, <coughs> sooner or later we will drink. And I can tell you right now, those promises came true when I was drinking. When I had one or two drinks, I found a new happiness and a new freedom. No question about it. When I had three or four drinks, I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me. When I had seven or eight drinks, financial insecurity just went out the door. And when I had 10 or 11 drinks, I knew, I knew that booze was doing for me what I could not do for myself. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. But that's exactly what happened to me. The only problem with that is that booze gives me the illusion that all those things are coming true in my life. And then I wake up the next morning and I feel restless, irritable, and discontented, full of fear, full of anxiety, full of shame. Who remembers the phone ringing on a Sunday morning after a Saturday night and you're picking it up and you, and you don't remember what you did last night? You don't remember what you did and you're so scared to pick up that phone, but part of you wants to know what you did, but really a part of you doesn't want to know what you did. And you pick up that phone and somebody tells you what you did. You know, that's shame. That's shame and humiliation. That's a heck of a way to live. And thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous that we don't have to live that way anymore. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I was like before I even picked up a drink. And I'm going to talk a little bit about drinking. But you know what? i got to be honest with you. I don't talk a lot about drinking because most of the stuff I remember never happened. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my family and, and, and that, and you'll be able to go from there. And, and I want to talk about this disease because I really believe this disease is a disease of perception. And what happens to a guy like me is I see things differently. And the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and don't ever forget this, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a change in what I see, but it's a change in how I see things. And the progress and the progression of Alcoholics Anonymous, going through the steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you get to see things differently. And that's the way my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous has been, is that I can look at something one time and I can see it completely different a year, two years later. And I usually what happens to a guy like me is they become blessings. The worst things that I thought could ever happen in my life have turned out to be the biggest blessings in my life. You see, I really believe that nothing bad happens to a guy like me. I really believe that nothing bad happens in sobriety. It always takes me to the next level in my life, and it takes me to the next level in my sobriety. And usually what happens is a year or two or three years later, I see the blessing that God gave me. And I'll never be able to see that when I get out of it. But the bottom line is if I take a look at things and I do what I'm supposed to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, sooner or later the penny will drop and I'll say, thank you very much, God. Because that was too much for me to handle. You see, I really believe that people don't get drunk over the first half of the first step. They get drunk over the second half. Because we still think we can manage our lives. You know, how many times in Alcoholics Anonymous do we try and manage our lives? You know, and I've come to understand that the one thing I can't do is manage my life. You see, I manage my life into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I manage my life. And the bottom line is I have to sell 51% of the shares in my life to this thing called a higher power or God or whatever you want to call it. And I have to keep 49 to, so I can do the legwork in AA. I failed grade five. How do you fail grade five? I failed grade five, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it's so important. I've never met an alcoholic. I've never met an alcoholic walk into Alcoholics Anonymous who has a good self-image of self. 
I've never met an alcoholic that's walked into this program that loves themselves. I've met 150,000 alcoholics that are in love with themselves, but I've never met actually anybody who likes the people they are. You know, the alcoholic ego is beautiful. Eh? It can go from one end, of the, one end of the spectrum to the other one. It can sit here and tell me, you know what, Eric? You're better than everybody in this room, and you don't need Alcoholics Anonymous. But then it can sit there and it can tell me, you know what, Eric? You're sicker than everybody in this room. It can go from one extreme to the other extreme, and that is self-centered to the extreme, egotistical, self-centered to the extreme. They say to me that, you know what our problem is? The root of our disease is selfishness and self-centeredness. And I love that because what do they ask me to do? They ask me to come to Winnipeg and talk about who? Talk about me. <laughs> I'm not much, but I'm all I have. <laughs> you know? But I failed grade five. And that's devastating to a 10 or 11 year old boy. Because what's happening is, you know what? All these other kids are going up to grade six and poor old Eric's going to stay in grade five. What are those teachers trying to tell a guy like me? They're saying, Eric, you're not quite as good as these kids. You're going to go, they're going to go there, you're going to go here. Now, is that what they're trying to get across to a 10 or 11-year-old boy? Of course not. But that's where I see it. That's my perception about how I feel about myself. So as you can see, this thing is already starting to take off. I'm not feeling good about myself, you know? I can remember I, was, I come from a hockey family. I come from this family that's uh, my dad. I'll talk about my family in a second, but we were top-level hockey players. We were all at the AAA level. And I was all, all my brothers were, were fantastic hockey players, and I was, I'm the youngest of four boys. And so what would happen is I, I always was the last cut from the hockey team. You know, I'd always make it right there, and then I'd get called into the office, and they'd always say, Eric, you know what? We're going to have to let you go. You're just not quite good enough. And all my friends are going up here, and poor old Eric's going down here. Now, again, what am I thinking? I'm saying, you know what? I'm not as good as these kids. Now, is that, again, what they're trying to get across to a 10- or 11-year-old boy? Of course not. But that's the way I see it. So again, already, I'm 10 or 11 years old and I don't feel good about Eric. I always wanted to be someone else doing something else somewhere else. I was never quite happy with who I was. And i got to let you know about my family because I come from a family, a loving family. I hear a lot of horror stories in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what? I completely agree with all of them and how tough it was. But the bottom line is I come from a family that was a loving family. My mom and dad gave us everything we needed. Not everything we wanted, but everything we needed. It was an upper-middle-class cl- upper family, and it was just a good family to, to be with. You see, I have, I have three other brothers, three older brothers, and two are alcoholic and two aren't. The two youngest are alcoholic and the two older ones aren't. And you see, what I hear in Alcoholics Anonymous is a lot about people blaming people for why they're alcoholic. And I've come to understand in this program that victims do not get better in Alcoholics Anonymous. They die an inch a day for years and years and years. Until I was able to take full responsibility for my sad lot in life, and I was, I was able to accept that I have this disease of alcoholism to my innermost self, I could never get better. As long as I was blaming it on mommy or daddy or my brothers or, 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 or because it was raining on the way to school or because the sun came up in the east instead of the west, the bottom line is I was never going to get better in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing wrong with going back and taking a look at what you have done and what perpetuated you to get from here to here. But the bottom line is that if you hang there, you die. And you die an inch a day for years and years and years. And I didn't, and I, I, we can't afford to do that. We cannot afford to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I have this, bro, I have my, my dad, he comes from, the, he, he's a, he was the University of Toronto. He played hockey for the University of Toronto Blues. He was the captain of that hockey team. My mom was a, a, a 
basically a great mom. She, she went to the University of Toronto as well. I have a brother, Barry, who's now a, Bab- he's a Baptist preacher. And uh, Barry had a little problem with alcohol, but he found God. And now he's a, he's a teacher at Heritage College in uh, Cambridge, Ontario, which is a Bible college. He's got his master's, and he just quit drinking at 21 years old and never looked back. Now, I have a brother named Scott, and I'm sure every family's got this brother. It just makes you sick because everything he does just turns to gold. And I, he works, he's one of these guys that works the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in his life, and he doesn't even know it. It just comes naturally to him. And I was talking to Scott on Thursday, and, and, and I had a great conversation with him. I'm probably the closest to Scott. And Scott's one of these guys, and I'm going to tell you a little story about Scott. Scott left home when he was 16 years old. He went to play junior hockey in Kingston, Ontario. At the end of that three years, he signed a professional contract with the New York Islanders. And he played about 25 games in the NHL, but most of it was spent in the American League. He came home after every summer and went to school every year to get his B.A. At 26 years old, he decided he was going to retire from hockey, and he did. And he went back to school for one more year to finish his B.A. And then he went into law school, and he, and he got accepted into Osgoode College, which is probably one of the best law schools in Canada. And he graduated after three years in the top 2% of his class, and he went to article at one of the firms downtown, one of the best firms called Tory & Tory Downtown Toronto. After that, he got the opportunity to be the, the, the general manager of the Cape Breton Oilers, Edmonton Oilers farm team. And he stayed there for a couple years, and he moved the team to Hamilton uh, for five years. And when Kevin Lowe got hired as the general manager of the Edmonton Oilers, he hired my brother Scott as the assistant general manager. Scott makes a six-figure salary. Scott has a beautiful wife and three children. And every once in a while, I try and get him to admit of all the fun he missed out on that I was having. And he just won't do it. He just won't do it. And then I have a brother, Paul, and Paul's probably my hero. Because Paul showed me what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. I watched Paul for four and a half years because we, we, uh, me and Paul lived together. And I watched Paul grow for four and a half years. I watched him gain the respect of my parents back. I watched him gain the respect of his employers back and my brothers back. I watched this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous work in somebody's life, and I saw his life turn around 360 degrees. And I watched this beautiful deal and this miracle work in his life. And I saw that right in front of my eyes. And when they talk about this program being an attraction rather than promotion, it certainly was because I watched this thing turn in Paul. I watched it happen. And you know what? It was such a beautiful thing. I didn't see it at that time, but it's taken me a while in Alcoholics Anonymous to see what Paul did. Paul was probably the best hockey player out of all of us. He had all the tools. He could skate. He was strong. He could shoot. He could score. He could playmate. He could do all those things. But the bottom line is this disease of alcoholism caught up with him when he was 16 or 17 years old. You know? And it just took him right out of the, right out of the game. You know? But Paul was probably the best hockey player out of all of us. And then there was me. And so again, I talk about this, this, this thing about victimization, and I blamed everybody in the world for my alcoholism, but the bottom line is that you've got to understand, two people are and two people aren't. Two of the boys are and two of the boys aren't. We grew up in the same house together. We grew up down the hall from each other. We petted the same dog. We drank out of the same juice container. We did all the stuff together, and two people aren't and two people are so what I'm trying to get across is that I can't blame anybody for my alcoholism. It's just the way it is. And I know there's people here tonight. I know there's people here tonight that are saying, you know what, it's everybody's fault that I'm an alcoholic or this and that. And the bottom line is that until you get over that case and say, you know what, I'm just willing to take full responsibility for my side lot in life, 
you will not get better. And I know that I have to take responsibility for my alcoholism. I know that I have to do that. <clears throat> and that's so important to me because, as I said, is that I can't blame everybody in the world for what's happened to me. I'm going to talk about the first drink of alcohol because when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and they said, you know what, Eric, it's the first drink that gets you drunk, you know what my reply to it was? These people are bad drinkers. <laughs> These people do not know how to drink. And it's interesting because if you take a look in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first 52 pages in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talk about two things. They talk about what happens to Eric when he takes a drink and what happens to Eric when he doesn't take a drink. And if you take a look in the doctor's opinion, it will explain the problem. And I urge anybody that's new here in Alcoholics Anonymous to find out what their problem is because I think that's very, very important. And you take a look at the first 52 pages and they do it in many different ways. What happens to me when I take a drink of alcohol is I develop this thing called the phenomenon of craving. I am allergic to alcohol. I have an allergy. I have some kind of reaction to alcohol. They call it an allergic reaction to alcohol. And it happens to one out of every 10 people that pick up a drink of alcohol. And what happens to me is when I take one, I want two. And when I take two, I want three. And as I look back on my drinking, that's exactly what happened to a guy like me. Once I took a drink of alcohol, I couldn't stop. And it was proven to me over and over and over again. The only time I ever stopped drinking, the only time I ever stopped drinking is if I had no money left or if there was no booze left. And that's just the way it was for me. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and you build up a bright outlook upon you and your family and you continue to tear that down on a senseless number of sprees and you fail to recognize without sufficient force the pain and humiliation of a day, a week, or a month ago and you continue to do this over and over and over again and you're not alcoholic, what are you? What are you? You would do well to contract this disease. This is the only disease in the world that if you catch it, you get better. If you don't catch it, you die an inch a day for years and years and years. And you know what? That meeting that night, I caught this disease of alcoholism. Alcoholics Anonymous presumes sobriety. You cannot drink and recover at the same time. It's as simple as that. You know, I see people coming around and they go back, they're in and out, they're in and out, and they're saying, you know what, I'm still trying to get spiritual while I'm drinking. It can't be done. It cannot be done. You cannot practice this program unless you're sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I see people that try and try and get spirituality and they can't get it because they're still drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous presumes sobriety. It presumes sobriety. We can't drink and recover at the same time. So I go back to that about me drinking and this allergic reaction, what happens to me, and they do it in many different ways in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they do it with jaywalkers. They do it with people that put whiskey in their milk. Uh, they do it with all sorts of different ways and they say it over and over and over again. And do you know why they do that? Because the people that wrote this book knew who they were talking to. They were talking to alcoholics. Do you ever notice that we read the same thing at every meeting? How it works, we read it every meeting. In Toronto, we read the traditions every meeting. If, a new, if somebody came off the streets and came into these rooms for three months and they said, why do you guys read the same things all the time? Are you stupid? The reality is, as a guy like me, I need to hear these things over and over and over again. It's so important because if I forget where I came from, if I forget where I came from, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So they talk about this allergic reaction and the phenomenon of craving. In the doctor's opinion, there is five different types of alcoholics. They go through different types of alcoholics. And the one thing that they all have in common is they develop the phenomenon of craving. Once they stop drinking, they can't, once they start drinking, they can't stop drinking. 
And my other problem is once I stop drinking, all I can think about is where am I going to get my next drink? And what Dr. Silkworth calls that is the obsession of the mind. It's like a big fat idea that outweighs every other idea until I give in to it. And I don't know how many times I said to myself, I'm not going to drink today, and I'd be drunk by 12 noon. You know, I don't know how many times that stuff happened to me, and all I could think about is where am I going to get my drink? I need my drink. So you know what? I have a problem because you know what? I can't drink because I, I'm allergic to it, and I can't stop because I have a mind that keeps on telling me that I want it. And as I talked about in the, 50, in the 52 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's exactly what they talk about. I don't know about you people, but I prayed not to be an alcoholic. I did everything in the world not to be an alcoholic. I cried not to be an alcoholic. And it wasn't until I read that simple line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and that we agnostic where it says a lack of power is our dilemma. You see, folks, if you've done that and you're wondering why you're an alcoholic, the bottom line is it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's just the way it is. And as I said before, until I accept that, I'm going to struggle in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And so it's so important for us to find out what our problem is and what the solution here is in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a member of the Baby Country Club, and a Baby Country Club is an alcoholic's paradise because you're private members of this country club, and I'll tell you what happens at private clubs, is you write your name and number down, and they give you whatever you want. And at the end of the month, Daddy gets the bill. Beautiful thing. And so we had two practicing alcoholics at this time, so me and Paul would go over to that club or I'd go over. And I want you to think about this. I'm 16 years old. Does this maybe tell you a little bit about early stages of alcoholism? I was 16 years old, and I, the club was around the corner from my house. And I would go down to the club, and I would sit there and watch Monday night football and drink liquor by myself. And then I'd go into the card room, and I'd play cards and do whatever I had to do. And then I'd come back, and then I'd walk home. And I did this a lot. And the only problem with that is on the 6th or 7th of every month, your dad would get the bill. And my parents were separated at this time. And my dad would phone me on the 6th or 7th of every month, and he'd say, Eric, you can't do this to me anymore. You cannot do this to me anymore. This is costing me so much money. You can't do it to me anymore. And you know what I'd say to my dad? I'd say, Dad, I promise I'll never do this again. And you want to know what, folks? I meant it. I didn't want to do that kind of stuff to my dad. My dad had given us nothing but the best. He gave us the love. He gave us the financial support. As I said before, he didn't give us everything we wanted, but we got everything we needed. We didn't go starving for nothing. And I didn't want to do that kind of stuff to my dad. But I want to tell you about the, the, the disease of alcoholism. And when they talk in the big book about this thing, is powerful. It's cunning, baffling, powerful. About two or three months after I said that to my dad, I don't know if you people have ever done this, but I would say something like this. I wonder what he really meant by that. He didn't mean stop going to the club forever. He just meant give it a little break. And I would rationalize it and I'd justify it just to the way I wanted to see it. I went to the Baby Country Club two months later and I went for one drink. And I left the Baby Country Club about eight hours later. I made an ass of myself. I made an ass of my family. I didn't want to do that. But that's what one drink of alcohol does to a guy like me. It just starts everything off. It just starts the whole process off, you know? What's the difference between an alcoholic and a social drinker and a heavy drinker? The big book talks about that. You know, have you ever seen social drinkers? I don't particularly like social drinkers. 
you know. Have you ever seen these social drinkers? They'll be sitting at a table, they'll have two or three drinks, or they'll, they'll, the waiter will say, come up, and they'll give them a drink, they'll put drinks around the table, and you know what they'll start doing? They'll keep talking. Can you imagine that? They'll keep talking, and about two or three drinks, the waiter will come back and they'll say, would you like any more? And do you know what they'll say? They'll say, no, thank you, I'm starting to feel it. And that doesn't make any sense to a guy like me, because I'm just starting to feel it. That's where I want to go, because it's taken away the fear. And I've come to understand what happens to a social drinker. You see, social drinkers have good self-images of self. And social drinkers like the way they feel. And social drinkers don't feel ill at ease all the time. And their environment does not threaten them constantly. And so when they start to have about two or three drinks, something's starting to happen to these people and they're starting to feel a change. And they don't want to change. So they say, no, thank you, I've had enough. And every once in a while, they might drink too much, but not very often. And they stop drinking because they're quite happy with who they are. The alcoholic, on the other hand, when they have one or two drinks, as I talked about before, something happens to us where the magic just starts to begin. And I've come to understand that the alcoholic is ill at ease constantly, does not like who they are, and I don't know about you, but my environment threatens me on a regular, regular basis. And when I have two or three drinks of alcohol, as our speaker talked Tom last night, I start to get rocketed into this fourth dimension. I start to go to a place where I want to be because I don't like who I am and I don't like the environment that I'm in. And what happens to a guy like me is because I drink a little alcohol, because I take some alcohol in my system, it makes living with me and it makes my environment that I live in tolerable to live in. That's what it does for a guy like me. That's the difference between a social drinker and an alcoholic. See, people used to say to me, Eric, you drink too much. And do you know what I'll say to them? No way. I never drink too much. And if you're an alcoholic, you could never drink too much in the world. My problem is, is I can't drink enough. You see, when they talk about us being powerless over alcohol, I'm not powerless over alcohol because I can't drink. I'm powerless over alcohol more so because I can't make it work anymore. I cannot make it work anymore. I never set out once to say, you know what, Eric, I'm going to go get so disgustingly drunk that I'm going to puke on the cop car. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something to the bar. I'm going to do all this. I never set out once to do that. It was always, you know what, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to have a couple drinks, and that's going to be the end of it. And I never set out to get completely drunk. The only problem with alcoholics, and as I told you before, the only problem is that we have a couple drinks and we start to feel good. And then as time goes on, we need more and more and more. You see, there are three stages to alcoholism, in my, in my opinion. The first stage is, is what I call fun plus fun. You know, we're starting to really enjoy it, and it's a lot of fun for a long time. And I don't know about you people, but I enjoyed alcohol for a long time. It was a social lubricant. It was great. And then the second stage of alcoholism is what they call fun plus problems. But you see, I'm still having fun. And as long as an alcoholic's having fun, they're never going to quit drinking. As a matter of fact, the alcoholic just needs to think that they're going to have a little fun, and they'll never quit drinking. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then the, the third stage of alcoholism is what they call problems plus problems plus... You see, the good old days are gone, and we'll never be able to recapture that feeling that we had years ago. You see, I know that I was in the early stages of alcoholism when I was 16 years old. Somebody could have come up to me and say, Eric, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. You better do something about your drinking. And you know what I would have said to them? I would have said, but I'm having fun. 
I'm having fun. And as long as we're having fun, you know what? We're never going to come to alcohol. It has to be desperation. We have to be desperate. And until we're desperate, we're not going to do anything about our drinking because drinking made us, drinking was our solution for so long. It made us feel like we were part of society. It made me feel like I fit into this world. And you take that away from me, I'm going to feel like a mess. You see, it's interesting. Most alcoholics don't commit suicide when they're drinking. They commit suicide when they're sober because they have nothing to replace the drinking with. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. Alcoholics Anonymous replaces drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous works exactly the same way as drinking, except it just takes a little bit longer. It just takes a tad longer. <coughs> and I'm going to talk again about the first drink. When I was, I was coaching AAA hockey, I was coaching it for 16 years. And I was 26 years old. And I took over an Ontario Championship hockey team. And I was 10-1. and one. My team was 10-1 and one in November. And they said, uh, I got called into the president's office, and he said to me, he said, Eric, we, we, there's a lot of people complaining about your drinking. There's something you've got to do about it. And he wanted to fire me right on the spot. But I, I'm, good at, I'm a good con artist, and I'm good at talking. And for some reason, he, I talked my way into staying there. But he said, there's two rules you must, you must do. And I said, what are they, Dave? He said, the first thing is you seek professional help. Huh, no problem, Dave. I'll seek professional help. No big deal at all. I had no intention of seeking any professional help. The second thing he said, and this is the kicker, he said, you can't drink in Double Rink Arena's bar. Folks, he's not even asking me to quit drinking. He's just saying, stay out of one bar in Toronto. That's all he's saying to me, one bar. Stay out of one, Toronto's a big place. One bar. About two weeks later, and I don't know if you people have ever done this, but I'd say something like this. I wonder what he really meant by that. I was in Double Rink Arena for a game at 12 o'clock on a, on a Saturday afternoon. At 1.30, I was in Double Rink Arena's bar to have one drink. I left Double Rink Arena's bar at 8 o'clock that night, so drunk, so disgustingly drunk, I made an ass of myself, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. You see, there's two things that made Eric feel like a person. The first thing, and always the first thing, was alcohol. It made me feel bulletproof. And the second thing that was so important to me is I had this little hockey card that said Eric Housen Hockey Coach, and that made me feel like a million dollars. And our book talks about that. It talks about when everything's on the line, when we put everything on the line, and we still pick up a drink of alcohol, even though we know exactly what it's going to do to us, we still pick up a drink of alcohol. You see, the consequences were never too heavy for what alcohol gave me. You know, it talks about in that book things that are in our favor and we pick up a drink of alcohol. That's insane. When they talk about the insanity of this disease, that's exactly what they're talking about. They're not talking about the 10th floor of a, of a hospital where people are there that are going to need some treatment for the rest of their lives, and they're going to need some kind of chemical to make their brain balance properly. That's not the insanity we talk about here in Alcoholics Anonymous. The insanity we talk about here in AA is as being as perfectly sober as you and me are right now and picking up a drink of alcohol, even though the evidence is overwhelming what happens to people like us when we pick up a drink. And we pick it up. That's what Bill Wilson's definition of insanity is, being as sober as a chief and still picking up a drink of alcohol, even though the consequences, we know what happens to them. And we still do it. And we still do it. My last month of drinking was really impressive. I was out of a job, I had some money in the bank, and this was my routine. 
I would go to the I'd go to the liquor store at about 10 o'clock in the morning. For you people that don't know, the liquor stores open at about 10 a.m. Okay, and I'd go to the liquor store at 10 a.m. I'd grab a 40-ounce or a rye. I'd usually go to the bar for some lunch, a couple crackers and a few beers. And then I'd go home and I'd drink rye all night. I'd pass out at about 2 in the morning or 1 in the morning. I'd get up at about 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd do my aerobics over the toilet. I'm sure you've all done them. And then I'd do the same thing. Then I'd pass out, have a couple more drinks, pass out. And I did this over and over and over again until July 11, 1993. That weekend, I had bought a case of beer and I was so physically, physically sick that I couldn't even drink that beer. And I was so physically sick that even though I was drinking it, I couldn't get drunk. It wasn't working anymore. And that's what I talked about being powerless over alcohol when it just doesn't work anymore. It wasn't stopping the noise going on in my brain anymore. It just wasn't happening. The most devastating six inches of space is the space between our ears. Because the stuff that goes on there is unbelievable. It never stops. My brain's going 40 different ways looking for a stop sign. And you know, it just doesn't stop. And it wasn't stopping any of it. The liquor wasn't working anymore. And I was so physically sick. And I really believe that night, when they talk about that weekend, when they talk about this disease being a threefold disease, when they talk about it being physical, mental, and spiritual, I believe that night, that weekend, I was physically bankrupt, I was mentally bankrupt, and I was spiritually bankrupt. And that whole day on the Sunday afternoon, all I, my brother Paul really wanted me to come to this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was debating it all day because it was the hottest day that had ever come across Toronto. It was never been hotter in Toronto. It had nothing to do with me withdrawing from alcohol. <laughs> but it was so hot. And I can remember going into the Bayview, I finally decided. You see, I was saying to somebody this weekend, the worst decision I thought I could have ever made was come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Turns out to be the best decision I ever made. Isn't that weird? You know? The worst thing that I could have thought I could have done was come to AA. You see, we had one alcoholic in the family we don't need anymore. That was my thinking. You see, when my brother was 27 years, 26 years old, and he came into this program, I was 22 and a half years old. And do you know what my thinking was back then? I have another three and a half years of good drinking before I have to turn myself into you people. <laughs> That's the way I thought. So I knew that I was powerless over alcohol long before I got here. Would I use those words powerless? Of course not. But I knew there was something really weird about my drinking. And as I talked about before, I came in on the second half of step one because I couldn't manage my life anymore. I couldn't manage it, you know? And I went to the baby group that night and I saw the excitement and I saw the hope and I saw all that stuff. And my brother Paul, after the next day, he said, I don't want you to pick a sponsor. I don't want you to pick a home group. I'm going to take you around to meetings and for the first 30 days, we're going to go to meetings every day. And that's exactly what my brother Paul did. And I'm so grateful for what he did for me, Paul. Because again, he did with this program. Because this program, it's so hard. And you heard Tom talk about it last night and Mary talk about it. It's so hard to help loved ones. It's so hard. Because our expectations start to get up here. And when our expectations start to get up here, what happens to people like us when they're not met, we get resentful.